A full transcription of this episode is available at media.icoalert.com and at bitkenstein.com. Academic publishing in scientific and medical fields is central to much of society. You might not think so, but legislation, corporate policy, litigation, ethics, research direction, guidebooks and textbooks of all kinds all rest on the foundation of peer-reviewed academic studies. But the ancient peer review system is opaque, clunky, and perhaps even prone to error. How can transparent, decentralized networks revolutionize the way we as humanity know things? I'm Peter Kay, and this is Bitkenstein's Table. I'm very excited to have Manuel Martin, co-founder of Orvium and data streaming project leader at CERN, the European Organization for Nuclear Research, famous for the Large Hadron Collider, on the podcast today. Manuel is an expert on both blockchain and scientific publishing. Before we get started, I want to make it clear this podcast is not sponsored in any way by Orvium or Manuel or anyone else. I've received no compensation of any kind, and only scheduled this interview because I personally find that the problems Manuel is solving are critical for our future. And of course, although I'm the Senior Architect and Director of Globalization at ICO Alert, and Manuel is the co-founder of Orvium and Data Streaming Project Leader at CERN, the opinions we express are our own and not the opinions of the companies or organizations we work with. None of this is specific, professional, financial, or investment, or other advice of any kind. This podcast is purely for informational and entertainment purposes. It helped me learn and enjoy life, and I hope it does the same for you. For any who don't know, CERN is the European Organization for Nuclear Research, most famous in recent years for its Large Hadron Collider. That's the largest particle collider, and indeed the largest machine in the entire world. You'll often hear Manuel refer to the Large Hadron Collider as the LHC. The collider took 10 years to build, and its circular tunnel, which is actually repurposed from an older collider, is 27 kilometers, or 17 miles, around its circumference underground and filled with a massive particle accelerator. In places, it's over 175 meters, or 500 feet deep. As we chatted before the podcast, I remarked how I remember hearing that maybe the collider would create a black hole that would end the Earth, and Manuel was quick to reassure me that the kinds of collisions performed in the Large Hadron Collider happen all the time in nature. So unless we think cosmic rays are just going to create black holes in the sky, we don't have anything to fear from CERN's experiments. A lot of fascinating scientific data has come out of CERN over the past decade, and Manuel has been a vital part of the team managing that data. So excited to have you on the podcast, Manuel. And as I'm generally in love with all things nerd, (laughs) from space exploration to tabletop RPGs to linguistics to philosophy, obviously, to quantum physics, you know, anything. I have to ask first, 
What have you been doing at CERN for all these years? So yeah, I'm kind of nerdy, as, as you said. So this was my first motivation when I came to CERN like 12 years ago as a student. So I, I came here because I wanted to know in the first person how a big institution, also one of the biggest research labs, was doing and what kind of things we're doing. So I'm not a physicist, I'm an engineer. So coming to a very pure physics place, that was a challenge by myself and a challenge that I wanted to, to embrace. So at the time, the first task that was given was mainly related with the control systems. So we wanted to take over all the responsibilities regarding data management for the control system. So, and that was a very exciting time because, you know, the LHC just launched in 2008, so which is about a year after that I arrived to CERN. So we were pretty busy at the time. So as a student, have the chance to collaborate in such an amazing experiment that was extremely motivating at the time. So after that, I keep for a while the same task. And like seven years ago, so I was given the responsibility to understand or to assess how all these new technologies that were coming at that time right, with big data can be used or could be used in, in our environment. So Sam was doing big data at that time for 20 years. So, but there was a new branch of technologies and wanted to understand how those technologies can make us more efficient in the operations, in our daily base operations. So, and that was, I did actually understood all the need, understood the technology and I made the match. So nowadays, all these big data and machine learning techniques that were starting at that time are widely used in the institutions for the, from the control system to the physics analysis and so on and so forth. So and that was quite a good achievement as well from my side. So you began to work with managing data there at CERN, including data from the Large Hadron Collider. I assume that's what eventually led you into blockchain, right? It's kind of a branch of data science, databases, data management. Uh, like a year ago, a little bit more than a year ago, so I was given another responsibility, still keeping the previous one, but I was given another responsibility, which is understand how blockchain can be used in our institution. So, and this is sadly what I'm doing now, and exploring different paths on how we can utilize blockchain in our environment. But actually, you know, turn at the end of the day is a wide collaboration. So with more than oh, people and institutions from more than 110 different nationalities working together with, to achieve the same goals. And blockchain is kind of the same. It's like how to put many different people to work together to achieve the same goal. Fascinating. Fascinating. So you're focused on scientific publishing. A scientific, academic, peer-reviewed publication is a large industry, like tens of billions of dollars at least. I worked in the nonprofit sector for a good amount of time myself, dealing with medical ethics, and it's amazing the number of articles you can find that have problems with their methodology, or their conclusions are simply wrong and don't even follow from the actual study. And there's often a profit motive you can find, whether direct kickbacks, or maybe avoiding legal liability, or maybe undisclosed conflicts of interests that the authors have. This leads to unnecessary and harmful medications and even surgeries continuing because they make somebody's wallet fatter. Tobacco companies paid people to publish studies, finding that cigarettes weren't so harmful decades ago. And often there wasn't anyone on the other side incentivized to fork up the millions of dollars required to counter all of those studies with legitimate studies. That took decades for us to get past, and it still continues with the tobacco industry today to an extent, and to a greater extent with many other more controversial topics. 
So I'm sure in the scientific field, you also saw problems with scientific publishing. What were the first problems you saw with the academic peer review process? So you're totally right. So something that, you know, at CERN as a scientific institution, one of the biggest scientific collaboration worldwide, something that we have to do is to publish our papers, our results. I used to work for the IT department at CERN, and I work pretty close by to the office where Tim Barsons Lee were working at the time that he was working at CERN and creating the web. Tim Berners-Lee, basically the man who invented the World Wide Web, right? What was his purpose on creating the World Wide Web? To make possible the communication between scientists, how they can share the results from one side to the world to another. And Actually, you know, the web has changed everything, changed almost everything that we know, you know, have changed our way to communicate, our way to work, to live, everything that we know. So it's a different world. And But what it didn't change in, in, the, in the wider scope is the scientific publication itself. So scientific scientists already, they are communicating in a different way, but the result is still are going through these publishers. So... That was the, 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 the driven motivation at that time. That was the early 80s, already 90s, yeah. But today we're facing exactly the same problem, no matter where this is concerned, it's in a small university. So myself, I have a struggle over the time to publish some papers, and then I have to wait two years before they give me an answer to say, you know, you have to change this part, you have to change that part before it can be published. And then... After those two years, well, they told me, if you change that, that will be published. You make the change, and then you have to wait a little bit more than six months because they don't have a slot in, in, in the next issue of the journal, which is, you know, is something kind of stupid because, you know, at the end of the day, they can publish the paper today. Why do I have to wait for an, for an slot? Yeah, that makes no sense at all. I mean, the business model itself makes no sense at all in the in nowadays all these new technologies that we were, you know, that we have been embracing for the last decades. Yeah. So, and that was the main motivation. Personally, this is something that I face by myself, the rest of the team as well. This is something that we face in the lab as well. And this is why we decided to go through, through finding out a solution for this problem. I haven't ever published myself, but in both humanities fields and in scientific fields, it's my understanding that the peer review system, it might be better than anything else out there currently, but it's hard to investigate, hard to probe and, you know, try to find things wrong with it, and easy to rig, because the reviewers are anonymous and their reviews aren't published or analyzed or or anything. In fact, the editor of any given journal can arguably outright block articles whose conclusions he or she doesn't like, or whose conclusions go against the editor's financial or legal interests. And one way to do that is the very peer review process designed to protect the system. But this peer review system hides all kinds of information, like the identity of the reviewers, the content of their reviews, the selection process for reviewers communication between the reviewers and communication between the reviewers and the editor, all of that's hidden information. Who knows what kickbacks the peer reviewers might be getting, either explicitly or implicitly. 
I mean, we're just trusting them to be honest. And I respect scientists and, and doctors, but they're still human. You know, they've got flaws. They have debts, often massive debts. Perhaps they're looking for government grants or corporate funding for projects they care about. And the committees that assign those grants and funding are pretty selective. So there are clear pressures for them to publish things that will advance their own goals, right? Perhaps the peer review system shouldn't be so secretive. I have doctor friends who have their studies rejected for absurd reasons, and there's just no accountability when that happens. There's no auditing of the system. It happens, and you have to shrug and say, oh, well. Yeah, I mean, you are totally right on the on the point that you describe. I think that, you know, this is one of the major problems of the current system, that is the lack of transparency. It's a very opaque process. There is a good part on that, but we have to be honest with this. So they wanted to try to keep what is called in science double-blind. So if I don't know you, I can be more, how to say, unbiased. I can be more, be more fair in my review. But at the same time, you know, this is a small world. So this... What is clear, and this is known by the by the publishers, that this double blind where you don't know the reviewers and the reviewers doesn't know the authors does not work at all. And this is because mainly when you review something, it's something that is more very close to the field that you are working with. So actually, it's very easy for you, based on the way that the author is writing and things, to understand who is the writer. And actually, if you know the authors, you are already biased. This thing this break. So while the system is designed for peer reviewers to not know the identity of the authors of the articles they're reviewing, in practice, because these fields are small groups of people, relatively speaking, reviewers can generally tell who the authors are, and that defeats the entire purpose. Yeah, I mean, some situations, a part of what's the important situation that you mentioned, as you say, they are competing from grants and many other things. So I asked for free to review a paper that actually is working in kind of the same field, on a very close field. So it may happen that this is something that I'm working on, or this is something I'm waiting to be published. So I don't have any pressure on how long should I take my review, or should I do it or not today. I can just wait for them, keep it there for a while, until my paper is published. And this is a situation that is happening every day. Actually, you know, this is a very old problem. This is not something new. And why it didn't happen that it was solved before? We strongly believe, I mean, myself and the rest of the Orbion team, that it was mainly because there was no the way to do that. Nowadays, with the blockchain, there is the way to that. There is a way to create uh, a system that is not owned by anyone or is owned by everyone, actually, as you wanted to see that. And this is inescapable to do whatever the publishers were doing in a more efficient manner, in a more transparent manner, in a manner that actually empowers scientists with the result that they are doing. So it can change everything. A journal article fairly recently and in the past few years dropped in the United States and hit a number of media outlets like a bombshell. It was written by the editor, former editor, a longtime editor of The Lancet, the very esteemed British medical journal. And it said that half of all published journal studies are false. This was an estimate, obviously. 
you and I and listeners could easily fight over exact numbers, but it's clear that whatever the percentage, the creation of false knowledge, at least in the medical industry, happens regularly in academic publications. False studies, of course, once they're out there, will get cited by other studies, creating a kind of snowball effect. In the medical cases that I mentioned before, there were many meta-analysis articles, which in some cases these articles cited dozens of other articles by the same authors as the authors of the meta-analyses, creating feedback loops. And these feedback loops just create and then reinforce new knowledge. And that's in air quotes, right? Bad knowledge. And that stuff is really difficult to root out. As someone from Europe, you would probably be amazed at some of the destructive medical practices that persist over here in the United States and in a few other countries in the world. Despite those practices being thoroughly debunked by medical science, And then, of course, the media doesn't make things better. It often summarizes up legitimate studies with headlines that are basically the opposite of the study's actual conclusions. And that just furthers the confusion. How can we work on undoing this damage of potential bad knowledge reinforced by years of bad studies? Actually, as you said, I mean, we can argue on the numbers, so I wouldn't say that a large number of, of, or a large percentage of the articles are totally fake one or a biased one, or driven by private interests or whatever. So I, I'm a believer, I think that scientists are doing a good job. However, don't misunderstand me, I'm not saying that this doesn't exist. I'm saying that, you know, i trying to believe that the number is not 50%, that should be lower than this one. So, however... This is a problem. This is a problem in every single in every single field of science. It's not only in the medical one. So, as I said before, this is how we are basing our next study, and this is no fault that you mentioned. So, let me ask you: What specific measures are you pursuing to fix the problems in academic publishing? So, the problem is that today we have only access to the final result of our research. So, you know, researchers have been work for years and then they write it down, they summarize everything in two, three, ten pages, and that's it. You know, you don't have any other tools today. So do you have access to the data that have generated this article? No. Do you have access to how, who did the reviews of this paper? No. Do you have access of the of the reasons why the publishers just published this paper and not other that contradict that one? No, you don't have this information at all. What blockchain brings, the transparency that blockchain brings, can change the model. So if the peer review is public, so the whole community can evaluate whether this review is valid or not, then the author has to take a decision whether that should take this review or not. But this is actually, you know, everybody can put their eyes on this. So that will enhance the model. So today, when you read a paper, you read just the result. You read the history, you know, you read just few pages that summarizes maybe eight or, or years of work. So the idea with Orbion is totally different. So from you as a reader, you can see the whole story of the paper. It was born that time. That was the first version, how it was modified, who did the peer review, and what was the content of the peer review that was modified or not. But as well, there is something that we didn't mention here. It's about the data that I've been using for that. So today you have just access to the last version of the paper to say to the history, to the final history. But with Orbi, you have the whole set of tools to determine by yourself whether the paper is a valid one or not. And if you're not somehow 
in the in the field and you cannot do that you will see the result of the whole community how the whole community have reacted to the paper because actually they have all the data they have all the result they have the whole life cycle of the paper and this is what we wanted to take science i mean if you ask to any scientists, they are not afraid to make it transparent because actually this is the only way that we have to evolve science is to base in previous results. So if we're basing our next science in previous results that are not consolidated, we are in trouble. And this is something that is happening. So we have to be sure that the work that I'm starting today is based on work that is already validated. And then giving the tools to validate to, to this whole community, to not only to two or three reviewers, this is key to make that possible. And then something that Orbion integrates in that part is that we have a lot of experience in big data and machine learning itself. So we try to find some hints that will determine how good is the review that we've been doing. For instance, you know, there is a problem with references. References, you know, at the end of the day, reference is one of the biggest factor to know how big, how important is your paper. So there is this kind of loop on references. You're referencing a paper of my colleague because he will reference myself. So and then that is gonna that is pretty easy to find it out, yeah. And I think that they are not valid. I said that the weight of these references should be less than the other, and that needs to be taken into consideration. So it's not just a struggle to publish papers; it's also a struggle once the papers are published for readers to see deeper and see what's actually going on. You want to make the review process more transparent. What about the data itself behind the articles? What we wanted to do, or what we wanted to allow the people, is to to share the data that have generated this thing. Today, everything, every single study, no matter the field, are based in data. So, and then when you get the paper, you get the results on tables about the data, but you don't have access to the data itself. So, at Orbion, we wanted to say, you know, you have the chance to put this data available to the rest of the people. So, if you really want the people to validate your article, make the thing easier for them. And then there is kind of very easy system, or this is kind of very easy system that will allow the people to understand how good is the paper or how fair and how accurate is the paper by itself. So, and then there is an advantage on sharing the data as well. You know, today, most of the, a majority in some fields of the, of the, of the research, as I said, are based in data. But the data itself is very costly to produce. And it's being produced in the same manner in many different teams over many different things because, you know, there is no communication way between the different people to say, you know, this data set is already created. Why should we have to recreate it again? What costs millions? Yeah, so I can just pay my study in, the, in that one that was already created by some other. So, you know, with that, what you will allow is this communication, this and double the, the, the spending and the cost and the effort. But as well, the most important aspect here is that you have access to every single piece of the research that will allow you to understand whether your reading is correct or not. Of course, many people aren't really in a position to evaluate very specialized articles themselves. They'll want to see what the community says. They'll want to see what a number of experts say. And as I said before, it maybe it's not yourself who have to make the decision because you are not prepared. You are just a standard reader in that field. But you will see the whole things of the community because right now the importance of the paper is based on the impact factor. The impact factor is based on the references. So and there is many ways to treat these references. So 
Right now, there is on the table, and this is not Orbion specific, there is on the table a discussion, a very deep discussion, how these kind of um, metrics should be calculated and how they have to be defined. So, and at Orbion, we are part of these discussions because we strongly believe that as you change the model, the metric should change as well. And they did not ask who will change the metrics because, you know, we can have a vision today, but the metrics should change over the time. So what we wanted to do with Orbion is to have kind of open every single piece of the data, every single bit of the research. So the metrics can be cal- can be calculated by the community by itself, you know, because everything is transparent, everything is open. They calculate, they can calculate the metric in a very easy manner. Just define it. Yeah. So, and I think that the core aspect of Orbion is that possibility to give tools to the people that doesn't exist today to determine whether the results presented to me, they are right or not. I love studying cognitive biases, you know, those problems that we all experience with our thinking because of the mental shortcuts we have to use to live. What is the biggest tip you would give me if I'm looking to improve my critical thinking? Maybe I need to improve my judgment of scientific studies, for example. What would you say I should do? So, I mean, I don't have, you know, I don't have a, I don't have a silver bullet for that. So I don't have a, a tip that can work for you, but I can tell you what worked for me at that time. So the first thing is to be humble. So to understand that we don't know anything about many different things. So sometimes we are afraid to say, I don't know. You know, you have to face some people, they ask you something and then you have to say, you know, I don't know can find someone who know better about this thing but this is not my my topic but we tend to understand we tend to 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 know about everything so because but this is not you have to be humble but what i wanted to say here is that you know i don't have a tip for for you but i can tell you what worked for me and what worked for me is that when i arrived at cern like more than 12 years ago something that i find it out is that cern is a wide collaboration so you can find people from all over the world with many different backgrounds branded for engineering physicists mathematicians you know equipment experts and many different things so at the end of the day you have lunch with them every single day so and then you have two options to listen to them and learn or yes think it by yourself that you know all the answers so as i said i mean you need to be humble sit down with them and then embrace whatever is different to you, because that will bring some benefits to your to your thinking. Yeah, that will bring, that will open your mind to many different ways of thinking, how many different ways to improve yourself, and how many different ways to to understand life and science in that way, which is could be better than the one than the one that you have in your mind. The first major philosopher in the Western tradition, Socrates, said, reportedly said, "The only thing I know is that I know nothing." And maybe we wouldn't go that far, but it's kind of like the Stoic emperor Marcus Aurelius later said. He was a philosopher in his own right. He wrote a book that's still with us called Meditations. And he says, I have learned that a man can be both resolute and yielding. It's kind of that same wisdom that we hear today when we hear strong opinions weakly held. And in fact, the philosopher my podcast is named after, Ludwig Wittgenstein, He was so willing to change his views and underwent such a dramatic shift in his views as his life went on that we have to split him into two thinkers, basically, early Wittgenstein and later Wittgenstein. It does us good to remember that we really could be wrong, even on fundamental things. 
I mean, Isaac Newton's theories, as far as gravity is concerned, they seemed correct and they matched up with observations people made about the world, right? But they were completely wrong. You know, Newton was completely wrong about gravity. And for centuries, everyone just took Newtonian gravity for granted. And we could be completely wrong about gravity, you know. Uh, there's still things, obviously, about gravity we don't understand. And we could be completely wrong about its fundamental nature. We could be completely wrong about the nature of a number of other things. I'm not saying we are. I'm not saying that we don't know anything. But that humility you describe, that willingness to be wrong, is always a crucial part of progress. And without humility, there can't be any progress. I don't want to to close this this interview without telling you because in that line I have two stories that I think that's worth mentioning here. So the first one is that in 2012, when you know CERN just made the announcement that we discovered something that was pretty similar to the Higgs boson. We didn't say that it was the Higgs boson. We say that it was something similar to the Higgs boson, just corresponding to the properties that we were expecting to see for a Higgs boson. Yeah, so it was a groundbreaking thing. Yeah. The people at CERN were kind of nervous because there was a press conference. We didn't know, no one at CERN knew what is going on during this press conference because we wanted to keep this double blind between the two experiments that were doing the numbers. So at the end of the day, what we were expecting to see is that those numbers match. But actually, that was very funny because I close, I work very close by to Alvaro de Rujulac, which is one of the most reputable physicists here at CERN, which is happened to be a Spanish as well as myself. And then I sit down with him and I say, hey, you know, we discovered the Higgs boson. So what do you think? Are you glad? And he said, you know, I do prefer that it was not the Higgs boson. Because if it is a Higgs boson, it means that we are in the right track. And this is not exciting. But if this is not the Higgs boson... It means that we are not in the right track. So myself, he is like 60 years old. I'm done, and we have a mystery for the next generations in that sense. I think that was kind of humble opinion, a very good one, you know. And and then there is another history, you know, in 2000, I don't recall the, 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 the year, but at one moment in time, we announced that we found out particles traveling faster than the speed of light that we observe particles is traveling faster than the speed of light. That was something that we didn't understand at all. So, you know, I was working in the team that made the measurements at that time of the, of the timing. So, so measurement how fast was traveling the particles. That time, that time, that case was a neutrinos. So we were pretty humble as well to say, we observed that the neutrinos are traveling from here in Geneva to Gran Sasso in Italy faster than the speed of light. So we do not understand that because if that is happening, it's breaking everything we know about physics. You know, it will break instant laws, every, it will break everything, relativity and so on and so forth. So we will give you, we'll make available every single piece of data that we have. And then, you know, it's up to the community to try to find out what is wrong because there must be something wrong yeah so imagine such a large institution reputable institution at CERN saying you know we observe that things that could change everything we know but there must be something wrong but of course as you say that hit the news and then in the news it says CERN observed particles traveling faster than the speed of light which is not the message that we pass. so at the end of the day it happened to be that we made a mistake in the in how we were calculating the timing and that was kind of embarrassing, yeah? But this is kind of things how science should move and how we have to be humble to say, you know, 
maybe we are at the top of our field, maybe we are at the top of our knowledge, but I'm pretty sure that there might be someone who is higher than myself or even better. So please check whatever I did because maybe I did something wrong. So what does your general timeline look like for the Orvium project? Are there any uh, exciting announcements or developments coming soon? Actually, we have a very big step this week. We launched our beta system, so now it's publicly available. It took some time because, you know, we were validating the ideas, we were validating the platform together with the rest of the team and our partners. So, but yesterday we have the we have it public. So this is open to anyone that wanted to see the majority of our ideas already implemented. So let's say that we are ahead of our roadmap. This is something that makes me really proud for myself and the rest of the team. And something that is good as well that, you know, this platform have been developed together with, with as a partner with, with Amazon. So they are doing a lot of efforts as well as in order to support that. Amazon, wow. To support that from the technology aspect to, to every single aspect that they can. So and this is a very valuable partnership as well. So let's go to our website. You have the link, test it. And, you know, we are pretty open. So working 24-7 nowadays. So if you have any feedback or you wanted to give us any comment or you have in mind any, any improvement, do not hesitate to contact us through any of the channels, Telegram, for instance, because we'll be more than glad to hear from that from you. Fantastic. It's been great having you on. How can people best get in touch with you to give feedback or maybe learn more about what you're doing? So my recommendation is to visit our website, Orbit.io, so then you will find all information about ourselves. But I wanted to say here that please go, Telegram is a great channel to communicate with us. So you will find myself or majority of the team just online almost 24-7. So we have not stopped working hours today. So yes, you know, raise any question you have or just give us any feedback because we will be very glad to hear and most probably will, you will get an answer very, very soon. Thanks for listening. As someone with a continual deep interest in the scientific and medical fields, and in general, the advancement of human knowledge, I find projects appealing when they're looking to make the system of publishing and knowledge creation, if I can term it that, more transparent, more accountable, more reliable. Please leave feedback for the podcast. Drop me a line on Twitter at Bitkenstein. And if you're listening on the ICO Alert podcast channel, go to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe to Bitkenstein's Table because the cross-posting won't happen forever. Bitkenstein's Table and the music on it are researched, written, recorded, and produced by me, Peter Kay, with the obvious exception of content from my guests, and with the exception of music listed in the show notes and the original theme song, this one, not the jazz one, by Joseph Dickinson. Besides the couple of jazz tunes, the piano solos this week were rough renditions of dances by Spanish composer Joaquin Torina. Next week, I haven't the slightest clue what the episode's going to be about, but it's probably going to be the most fascinating episode yet, so just make sure you tune in. So I'll see you all next week on Bitkenstein's Table, the Crypto Philosophy Podcast. <laughs>